think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick, your host. Is everyone doing all right out there? It's been a been a hard week to stay focused on, well, anything. And I know I will get some complaints about wading into politics like I, I do, but it feels like we should not be in a place where the ABA, of all organizations, feels any sort of obligation to say, the American Birding Association opposes the violent demonstrations of January 6th and strongly supports the peaceful transition of power. But if Axe body spray has to do it, I guess we should all be prepared. So that's that. Moving away from that sort of thing uh, into uh, birding politics. Uh, the American Ornithological Society's North American Classification Committee released their first batch of taxonomic proposals, and it is fairly non-controversial. Some interesting things in there, like finally splitting the North American mugle from the European common gull. Many authorities already treat these as two different species, uh, but the AOS has always had them lumped most interesting thing about this proposal to me is that it proposes that the North American birds be called short-billed gull, which, yes, that's a literal translation of the scientific name Brachyrhynchus. And yes, they do have, you know, dinky little bills by gull standards, at least, but we already have a name for these birds, Mugol, that is different from the European name, common gull. So why overcomplicate things? I don't know. There's also a proposal to lump McKay's bunting with snow bunting that seems at least on the surface, similar to the failed proposal to lump hoary and common red poles a few years ago. Many of the others that are relevant to the ABA area birders are sort of linear sequence changes, which is just, in layman's terms, just moving the order of birds around, which, you know, speaking for myself, of course, they're not terribly interesting from a birding perspective. I await, obviously, angry letters from our taxonomist listeners for that disrespectful statement. Notable for their absence was any proposal having to do with common names, though I know for a fact that a great many proposals were submitted to the AOS NACC in the last part of last year. Um, the last I heard was that the committee was putting them all together for a supplemental batch sort of at the end. Um, the cynic in me feels as though this is an attempt to sort of slow walk this bird names for birds movement into silence. I hope I'm wrong about that. Anyway, something to keep our eyes out for this year. On the show this week, allow the American Birding Podcast to pull you away from doom scrolling, from anxiety about conflicts that seem irreconcilable, to learn about potential conflicts where positive problem solving is the order of the day, at least for the time being. My guest is Dr. Janet Ng a raptor researcher from Saskatchewan. She studies ferruginous hawks and other birds of prey and how they use human-altered landscapes and how humans can do human things in a way that helps birds of prey do birds of prey things. So she will join me after this week's Rare Birds. 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first half of January 2021. We have some firsts to talk about, and I'll start with a subspecies rather than a full species, just because I find this story kind of interesting. An apparent Hoagland's gull, which is, per the AOS, a subspecies of lesser blackback gull, was well photographed in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. A number of other taxonomic authorities consider this Eastern European population of lesser blackback gull a full species, and it's been something of a mystery in the ABA area as full-on confirmed Hoagland's gull has only been confirmed once on Shemaya in the Aleutians of Alaska from a bird taken as a specimen. So this would conceivably be the second ABA record, first Canada record, first provincial record, Not something that will officially make the list now, but might down the road as we learn more about gull taxonomy. More conclusive first records in the ABA area this week include a Sprague's Pippet in Ozaki County, Wisconsin. Doubly surprising for being a winter record. That bird should be down in South Texas now. In Alabama, a lesser goldfinch visiting a feeder since the beginning of December 2020 was confirmed as a first state record. This bird was down near Mobile. In other notable feeder birds, a buff-bellied hummingbird in Norfolk, Virginia would be a state first. The incredible run Virginia had adding birds to its state list in 2020 looks to be continuing in 2021. And in Washington, a well-photographed and recorded winter wren in Orting would be a first state record. Though, if you were the joking type, you could say that there were tons of winter wrens in Washington years ago, you know, back before they split it into Pacific. And winter wren goes to show you why you should change the names of both sister species in the event of a split. It can be confusing. But perhaps most amazing for the period is the discovery of a white-throated swift in Hamilton County, Tennessee, a state first, only about the third or fourth record east of the Mississippi River. Pretty odd to find a swift in the middle of the winter. Those are the highlights for the last week of rarities in the ABA area. As always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning. That is at aba.org slash rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page. That is facebook.com slash groups slash aba rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. The wide open spaces of the North American West are these days frequently spotted with signs of human industrial energy production, oil and gas wells, massive wind turbines, and, and the like are impossible to miss and impact occasionally significantly the birds that live in these vast prairie ecosystems. My guest today is Dr. Janet Ng. She is a wildlife ecologist studying the effects of this industrial incursion into these wild places, particularly on raptors. She's based in Regina, Saskatchewan. Thank you so much for joining me, Janet. Thanks, Dave. Super happy to be here. Can you talk a little bit about what the landscapes you work on look like compared to, I don't know, perhaps what they are supposed to look like? Yeah, well, I think it's it's always important when we talk about the Great Plains is to talk about that historical context. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we see now, and often when we see when we're driving down the highway, is a lot of cultivation. So we see a lot of cropland, like weeds, different crops, um, tame grass. And what we're really missing out, especially if we don't kind of venture off those main highways, what we don't often see are those native grasslands. So native, gra- uh, native species of grasses, forbs, uh, shrubs, and uh, often wetlands and creeks and all those sort of natural features too. 
Uh, and so there's some of that left, but unfortunately the Great Plains is essentially one of our most endangered ecosystems in the world. And it's because it's, it's, <laughs> it makes great farmland yeah. or some, <laughs> some of it makes great farmland. And so, so we've got these competing interests. What's kind of nice about um, the Great Plains in Canada is that we actually have about 20 to 35% of our native grassland left in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And so that means we, given some effort, you can, actually go out and see some native grassland and it's beautiful because there's lots and lots of wildlife um, and you'll hear the birds and you'll you're you can tell where you are by which birds are singing which is, i think yeah. it's pretty fabulous yeah you, you you make a really interesting point you know a lot of people's ideas of the grasslands maybe not birders birders are sort of better about seeking out these sort of <laughs> very specific you know native landscapes but for the general public like you're driving through any part of the great plains and it's you think of this as like the American West, the real North American West or whatever, you know, it's the idealized version. But the fact of the matter is it is already sort of altered to some extent because of, as you say, the, the croplands for the most part and cattle production. Yeah. Yep. Cattle production. Exactly. And, and I, th- and I think when we have these conversations about these rare landscapes, these native landscapes, we mm-hmm. also do have to talk about uh, land use as well, too. A lot of the reason why we still have some of that grassland is because ranching is still well and alive in some of these areas and native mm-hmm. grasslands are really important for those producers. Uh, we are seeing, of course, we have seen lots of change over those grassland or in, in Great Plain landscapes because we've also kind of discovered other resources that make a lot of sense for us, too. Uh, yeah. So energy development for sure uh that can include oil and gas development like extraction and in some places too we've already seen a lot of development for renewable resources uh, such as wind energy and solar farms too and then i think especially you know because we're talking about driving around on roads too one of the real like underestimated features out in the great plains is just the sheer length of roads the road density that's on the landscape (laughs) too yeah and so, I mean, in, in Saskatchewan, I think we have more uh, these like municipal rural roads, these gravel roads, and they can wrap around the earth several times. Wow. Uh, and that, that's, that's just like the gravel. Those are the main gravel roads, never mind all the sort of additional resource roads that kind of network out to oil and gas wells and wind turbines and stuff too. So the, 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 the landscape is highly fragmented. And what sort of birds are prevalent in these places? I imagine that's sort of like a spectrum from birds that really like the the native, as close as you can get to that historical standard of grassland to birds that do that and then maybe are okay with a little bit of alteration to birds that actually, you know, probably manage okay with human altered landscapes as well. Yes, absolutely. So when, I mean, if you played birders grassland birders a point count just you know who's Mm -hmm. who's who's kind of tinkling in the background on that prairie chorus you could probably give your pretty good guess as to what mix of grassland and cropland there is you could probably even guess how grazed some of that grassland is and you might even be able to yeah you might even be able to guess like how many roads or how close you are to roads too and so so for for example thick build long spurs like really short short grass and so they're usually there after um cattle have grazed things quite short so that's sort of in that like new growth stage uh lots of bare ground too 
when it starts to get a little bit regrowth, um, say like a few weeks or a few months after those cattle have moved through, then you might see chestnut collared longspur come in. Huh. Uh, longer, longer grass, with more litter probably sprigs, pipits, and savannah sparrows, western meadowlarks. Uh, and then horned larks are these like wonderful, ubiquitous little birds yeah. uh, that are that are kind of found throughout these different um, lengths of grass, probably a little bit shorter. But I mean, they're, they're, often, they're often found near roads or on roads too. Um, and, and then there's other, there's other songbird species that probably, that seem to avoid roads too. And so, you know, if you're standing out there with your eyes closed and you feel, even if you hear like three, four songbirds singing, I think you can paint a picture of what's happening around you, which is huh. exceptional. And that, and actually that's what makes our science like not necessarily easy, but you know, they're the indicators of like what's out yeah. there. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's so interesting to me. You know, it reminds me a lot of say, you know, these sort of, I don't know, they're not featureless, but they seem featureless. You know, these yeah. landscapes like Great Plains or Tundra or Open Ocean. <laughs> and you're like, if, if, if you're not familiar with those places, you'll go out there and be like, oh, it all looks the same. You know, this is the same as that. It's the same as whatever. But if you are like really keyed into the birds or whatever, the, the organisms in that area, then like you really do start to notice these little seemingly subtle differences but you know obviously to the organisms that live in these places those differences are the difference between you know a place that they will nest and a place that they will not nest yeah and i think i mean a lot of us drive places and we see these big landscapes going by really fast but i mean Mm -hmm. i always and i just read a really wonderful article about this like the best way to get to know a place is to have lunch there and so you know you're you're sitting on the ground and yeah. uh, in the in the grasslands, depending where you are, it's like notorious. You have to look for cactus first, and <laughs> and it's always like the beginning of the season where you're like looking for pin cushions that you're either going to put your knee into when you kneel down first, or like you just promptly yeah. sit on. Or worse, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so so that's that's like a uh, tried and true like first lunch on the prairie kind of day. Um, but then, you know, you're sitting in the grass and you're looking at like actually how much moss and lichen is like beneath your fingers and beneath mm-hmm. your feet. And then, yeah, you do notice the differences between like, oh, this is probably more grazed. Oh, this grass is higher and all oh, this litter layer is a little bit higher. Uh, and then you kind of, and yeah, you're listening to what's, what's happening around you. So like, not everybody's going to go do a point count. Sure. Yeah, but right. I feel like, you know, having lunch or having like a cookie snack or something like that out, out, out on the land is a pretty great way to get to know it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm going to change gears for just a second here. Um, did you yeah. always want to be a wildlife ecologist? You know, I probably went through similar trajectory as a kid. I want to be this. I want to be that firefighter. I want right. to like yeah. be a teacher. I want to be a lawyer. But I, I can actually, I can pinpoint the moment I knew what I wanted to do. And I've always been interested in wildlife uh, and being outdoors and mm-hmm. kind of that interplay. And I remember watching a documentary. I want to say it's like the nature of things or something like something very Canadian, but I can't remember. But they flashed to an interview of this guy in probably like a parks uniform or a fish and wildlife uniform, had his name, and then he had his title underneath the name, and it was wildlife biologist. And I was like, oh. Oh, well, that just puts it all together. Yeah, that's what I want to be. So, <laughs> yeah, like, I can, yeah. yeah, I can actually pinpoint the moment where I knew what I wanted to be, which, which is, which I think is pretty special. Yeah. 
when you start out thinking about that sort of career trajectory, you don't necessarily think that you're going to end up working on oil and gas wells and the birds that are found there. I mean, that's not yeah. always on there. But it is sort of interesting the way that you sort of find a niche that, you know, maybe isn't where you thought you'd be, but uh, you find it gratifying to work on this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think it's, I grew up in a generation where World Wildlife Fund was like very, very active, actively, I don't know, like yeah. indoctrinating us to care about the <laughs> Oh, planet. I remember it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like everybody knows the little panda logo. So that, exactly. that's, yeah, yeah. Yep. Good, good branding. So certainly that's kind of what I grew up around. And so conservation and endangered species were mm-hmm. always kind of like thematic, right? It's like, oh, this mm-hmm. is really interesting. But like, oh, no, they're declining too. Oh, no, why are they? Oh, we're the reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and it's not always the case. But, you know, that's, that's sort of the theme that kind of runs behind yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a regular, a regular yeah. thing, that's for sure. And I guess once, especially when you start school and you start working on different projects and with different people, that theme kind of gets a little bit more structure in terms of species at risk, conservation, Mm -hmm. and I think importantly, species recovery too. And so that makes you ask those questions like, what's going on with this critter or with this plant? What are the stressors or the pressures on them? And what can Mm -hmm. be changed and what can be fixed? And so when you kind of start asking those types of questions, I mean, a lot of it, honestly, a lot of it falls into place. When we were kind of developing this uh, project with Ferruginous hawks in Alberta and Saskatchewan, they were listed or recommended by Kasiwik uh, an arm's length organization from the government that does the uh, species assessment for uh, listing. Uh, they were recommended for threat to be threatened. And that means that um, government actions are then regulated to like help the species. Mm-hmm. But it, and it also means that industry uh, or development or human activity that might be influencing or negatively impacting the species at risk needs to be also Um, managed or done in such a way that doesn't affect the species so basically on the ground everybody freaks out so whenever new species get listed (laughs) all the parties around the table become very very worried and and also i'd like to think hopeful too because now we've recognized that something needs work and that we can Mm -hmm. we're all sitting around the table to work on something and so we had partners around the table who Uh, were industrial partners who worked in oil and gas. We had industrial partners who worked in utilities. So they were building or refurbishing uh, transmission lines. Uh, We had a few wind power folks too that were around the table. And then we had all the government regulators too. So provincial bodies and federal bodies. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the conversation really starts there, right? So like, what do we know about these birds? Oh, not a lot. Okay. All right. (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, they're ferruginous hawks are definitely like they're pretty well studied species, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's still so much to know. And when you're asking really specific questions, like how close is too close to a nest for us to put up this piece of infrastructure? Well, yeah. nobody's asked that very specific question before. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so then we we also had a group at the same table where uh, folks from the university, uh, including a few graduate students who are you know trying to desperately write research proposals, and we're like, oh, you want us to ask answer that? Oh, we could answer that for sure. Yeah, right. And it it just takes the time and the resources and the dedicated power to do it. Yeah. Uh, 
And so, yeah, these things all really fell into place, which is which is great for graduate students who are out to get a degree and out to learn something. But mm -hmm. it also, you know, the things that come out of this research are also helpful to the people doing work on the ground, those land uses like oil and gas and energy. Yeah. Um, but then it also helps decision makers like government folks to make to make the best decisions possible too. Sure. I, f I feel lucky. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you've already answered this question. Do you find this sort of work depressing? Because, you know, the wildlife ecologist, you're on the front lines of seeing a lot of these declines or inspiring and in that you can enact these, these changes that, that need to happen. I've seen, I've been really fortunate. I've seen some cool stuff happen with the yeah. research that we've done. And that, that's what kind of keeps me motivated and keeps right. me working on these things. I mean, okay, so we did a whole bunch of science out, out in the field. It was great. It was glorious. We did a whole bunch of data mashing, statistical analysis, so much GIS in the office afterwards. Like, mm -hmm. my eyes were bleeding, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, I created some maps uh, that predict where hawks are going to be found. I predicted where hawks would do better if they nest if they would nest more successfully here compared to over here. And I was also able to pinpoint some of those some of those really specific industrial infrastructure features um, that uh, birds didn't do as well around. And and again, like, is it are they sensitive to all of it? doesn't seem that way but they are sensitive when there are a lot like a high density of uh, oil pumps or oil wells in a landscape mm -hmm. and really there's only a few spots in Alberta and Saskatchewan that had these high densities and so the government was actually able to uh, put some funds towards uh, ripping out or reclaiming some of these old abandoned wells to kind of reduce mm -hmm. that density on the landscape. Oh, yeah, and okay. it was wild, yeah, because they used my maps to essentially pinpoint, like, we could potentially increase or improve how, like, the hawk's life out in this landscape if we do uh -huh. some work here. Okay, that's where we're going to go do some work. And from, like, a academic researcher grad student point of view that is so stunning and so rewarding to, yeah. to have something that you've made actually be useful yeah um is virgin hawk uh, like a useful bird to 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 do this work for it i think so in lots of ways um mm -hmm. it's funny too because virginous hawks are predators so they yeah. uh sometimes eat other endangered species so we kind of have to <laughs> we, we kind of have to reconcile that and sort of Plan, think about that when we're doing work out on the landscape. Um, but I mean, my research found that, yeah, these high density oil well specific places were not great for their nesting. And so they're going to they're going to improve some of that landscape and return some of it back to native grassland by taking these human features out. I mm -hmm. think that's going to benefit a lot more species than just virginous hawks. Yeah. The other cool, very interesting thing that I found with Frugianus hawks, at least in Canada, and it was a really strong effect in, this, in the data too, was that they actually do really well. They actually um, are more likely to be found in landscapes that have some native grassland, but also some cropland too. So they actually really hmm. like, they, they seek out places that have this heterogeneous mix of some crop and some grassland with a little bit of edge. So like kind of where those... Uh, fields might meet or a few roads here and there like mix of this and that is good for uh, habitat selection but also nesting and um, foraging ability too and so frugianus hawks used to be this really iconic species for uh, large tracts of contiguous grasslands that's like that's like the catchphrase for frugianus hawks 
And so we've had to kind of tweak that a little bit. It's like, well, they actually kind of like a mix of things. I think that's useful because our conservation dollars, of course, like get a lot of bang uh, for our buck when we put them towards conserving or protecting these large contiguous tracks. But we've also got these postage sized pieces of grassland. They're kind of like patch patchworked throughout and now we've highlighted the importance of these patches of grassland and how they actually we really need to retain them and conserve them um, and that they're meaningful for other birds and so if we focus on large contiguous we might miss some birds like frugianus hawks but if we've got some dollars or we're trying to like create some connectivity or we're trying to like figure out um which direction we want this large tract of grassland to work in, maybe then we're, to, we're kind of moving it towards those networks of patches and postage stamps of grasslands. So we've got a reason to actually put some money into saving those nice, like, gorgeous piece of, pieces of grassland now. Yeah. Do you think there is a way, if, you know, motivation is there from these industrial interests to sort of mitigate that impact in a way that impacts birds less significantly? Like, if you're sort of allowed to dream about what a what a perfect landscape or a, you know maybe not perfect but a but a good enough landscape is what does that landscape look like hmm i guess from from partnering with industri- industrial partners i mean what they see as a good landscape is a landscape that they can use yeah. um and that also means that <laughs> And this, and this is from a business point of view, which I really appreciate, is that species at risk are expensive and logistically hard to work around. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, I mean, I, I would get phone calls and be like, look, this bird is costing us $250,000 a day. And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it must be odd to kind of put it on in such a non-passionate terms. Like this is, yeah. this is the, this is the monetary value of this bird in this situation. Yeah. yeah that's so odd. <laughs> it was so wild. Yep. Yeah. Um, because I mean, that's more money that I'll probably make in a lifetime uh, <laughs> right. for sure, actually. Cause I think it was 250 K a day. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and that was a single hawk nest. And so the question was like, are the rules where they need to be? Are we, are we being overly cautious? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what can we do to keep working on this landscape? And so the Katima graduate students and PIs from the University of Alberta were literally there to essentially rigorously ask this question. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's never as black and white. Yes, you can go there. No, you yeah. cannot go there. It's always right. a, well, it depends on the context and what exactly you're doing. That's always kind of the answer. That's the way that the answer goes. But the fact that we're working together and we're asking questions and we're testing them rigorously that lends us more reputation to work on Mm -hmm. these things. And when we do say that something has a negative impact, then they're more likely to uh, be supportive of those recommendations. And if we just sort of blanket go, Oh, this is all bad. um, Probably then people are going to, of course, push back. But if we ask the question, we really hit it hard. uh, We come up with some, pretty good answers and some that are bulletproof answers too, then generally people are pretty accepting of that because they've seen the process that we've gone through. And then if we see species recovery for frugianus hawks or other other species too, if their populations are doing better, that also means that the limits uh, for the work that can be done on the landscape can be reduced too. Mm-hmm. And so 
Uh, we've seen it in the States. We've seen it in Canada where people who have different industrial land uses out on the prairies have an invested interest in making sure that critters and plants do okay so they don't cross yeah. into that magical boundary of being listed. Right. And I mean, from a business point of view, that makes a lot of sense. From like the biologist, the conservationist, and just somebody who likes to recreate outdoors, I go, sure, whatever you need to tell yourself. Okay, that sounds great. Let's keep them off the list <laughs> yeah, and like right. let's keep these populations going in the right way. Yeah, and so yeah. so we, we find that common ground around the table. Sure. What about wind? Like how does wind fit into that too? Because that's sort of a different situation, especially with raptors. You know, there's a lot of rhetoric about, you know, wind being particularly bad for birds of prey, although, you know, I I, I question whether all of that is in entirely good faith, because I think that there's some people who are pushing that narrative that don't necessarily care about raptors. They're just the anti-wind. But um, right, how, right. Does, how does that fit into, into all of this? We've had, we've seen in history in North America, uh, a couple of really poorly placed wind farms yes. that have absolutely population impacts to the critters that live around it, including raptors. Um, and I mean, hindsight is everything. So we look at that <laughs> and we go, I'm sorry, you built that where? And so <laughs> the people kind of working on these questions, both industry partners and government biologists and, and, and academics too, are going, okay, okay. If the bar is that low, we can do so much better for helping recommend places that would be a good place or a slightly safer or hopefully really safe place to put this wind energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so not putting it beside population of uh, golden <laughs> eagles is a great yes, start right, right? Yeah. yeah and that's partly some of the habitat modeling uh how it can be used too so some of the habitat models i use it was fun and i can't even overstate how logical and easy it is i overlaid it with maps of where of wind in canada and people mm -hmm. have done this in the states too so we just have a map across Canada that's actually like curated by the government of Canada. And it's for people who are like, if I were going to build a wind farm, where would I build it? Where is it windiest? And so I was like, oh, this is amazing. So I put it into a GIS. I put my habitat model on top of it. And so you could see where, oh boy, this is a very windy place. And this is also a very hockey place, too. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting how those sort of correspond. <laughs> yeah, great. But then we were also able to, like, identify huge areas that were like, this is very windy and not very hockey. Mm, and so mm -hmm. then you kind of you kind of go in with, like, Vanna Whitehands and you're like, but what about <laughs> here? And so I, I'm hoping that type of work is um, taken up by folks that are trying to cite where some of this development goes. Yeah. Um, and one of the neat things, too, is that, like, I'm not a wind developer. I am truly at heart a wildlife biologist. Mm -hmm. But when I was looking at these maps of, like, where current wind farms are, yes, they're in windy places. Some of them are actually in, like, medium windy places. But what's really key is that they're directly beside transmission lines. Mm -hmm. And so people aren't going to build, at least the money's not there for people to build wind farms out in the middle of nowhere that aren't connected to the grid. Right. And yeah. so, limitations. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, and some of these transmission lines are billion dollar projects. They're going to choose places that are pretty windy that, that they can tap into. And so then those became higher priority in this like mapping exercise too, is that these are higher, these are potential for higher conflict if they're in hockey areas too. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of helped us 
predict areas that would be high conflict, low conflict. And then I think I identified something. Oh, what did I, what did I, well, again, because we're working with industry, we call things environmental liabilities. And so those are places <laughs> that are very hockey. Is that an official industry term, by the way, hockey? <laughs> it got thrown around. Well, yes, that's uh, that's the term that I use around the table because we're all like, yeah, 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 hockey, very hockey. We know what yeah. hockey means, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so then, yeah, it's again kind of focused, just being able to like pinpoint that transmission lines are sort of the first step to yeah. introducing wind energy where maybe we don't want wind energy to develop. Um, those are big, bigger questions. Those are above my pay grade by mm-hmm. far. But the kind of mapping and the type of best management practices and recommendations that come out of that research are fed into like a one pager and and then hopefully <laughs> stored somewhere collecting yeah. dust, but hopefully not collecting dust too, because again, endangered species make things difficult to work with and um, become very expensive to work around on a landscape. Yeah. And so if, if that's enough justification to do a better job to have lower impact, I'll gladly take it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice to see the conversation about wind going to a place that's beyond, you know, wind, is it good or is it bad? And it seems like it stalls out at that point so many times. And it's so frustrating when the conversation really should be wind, we need non-extractive energy. Let's figure out the best way to get this non-extractive energy in a way that doesn't negatively affect endangered species or any species for that matter, to the extent that that is even possible. So yeah, it's nice to see that conversation moving down the road a little bit. Right. And, and I think too, like, in terms of human development, industrial development, energy extraction, nothing gets in the way of that. That's and I, that's my brutally realistic approach mm-hmm. to it. But can we do it better? Will it cost a little bit more to maybe a lot more? Possibly to likely, but can we do it better? And what information is needed to do it better? And I think a big part of it is a making sure that our landscapes are kept um, healthy and intact. Um, and making sure that we don't have those population impacts the species. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough. It's I guess the part that kind of like makes it tough is when you hear about individual nests and individual birds being impacted by things, and that mm-hmm. is the worst. Um, yeah. But from from a big landscape, like if we're trying to give recommendations across two provinces, my study area was basically like all of southern Alberta and southern Saskatchewan, which is a couple hundred thousand square kilometers it's pretty vague yeah. and so we're, we're trying to give these like high level recommendations to have the most overall positive impact for species at risk and then it always it's never just big picture right like we have to those are the big picture recommendations and then there has from there it has to trickle down to local regional decisions too like mm-hmm. are we going to put this beside a wetland mm, do you have to can you just move it move it away from that migration yeah. corridor? Okay, cool. Good. So, so it's it's neat. I like being a part of these because we get to see um, kind of different scales of it through space. So like from like a single wetland or a single tree uh, to sort of like like the kind of a county sized area to like across the northern distribution for the species in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um the work that I do doesn't have the same necessary impact at all of these levels, but it's, I think, hopefully some of it can feed into these different like scales and different government levels, too, that um, can be useful. Dr. Janet Ng is studying how birds, especially raptors, use 
industrialized or semi-industrialized landscapes. You can find her on Twitter at Janet N-G-B-I-O. Uh, a great follow if you like photos of raptors and, and who doesn't. Uh, thank you so much, Janet. This was fun. Super. Thanks, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like what we do, please consider joining the ABA. You get magazines about birds, you get discounts to our partners, and the knowledge that you are helping to build a better birding community. If you join soon, you'll get the Bird of the Year magazine that has the stickers in it. Those are really cool. Get information about all our memberships, including e-memberships at aba.org slash join. I want to make some shout outs to... Liza Gray of Wayne, Illinois, Alexei Saunders and Mary Melly of Aurora, Colorado, Shane and Carrie Ferguson of Somerville, Texas, William Ackerman of Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, Amanda Barwise of Galesburg, Illinois, Peter Sperber of Newton, Massachusetts, Matthew Kitchen of Whitehorse, Yukon Territory, Allison Stokes and the Stokes household of Austin, Texas, Tino Bratbo of Monroe, North Carolina, Nicole Petrinti of Havana, Illinois, Brian Otis and the Otis household of Loma Linda, California, Kevin Curdy and the Curdy household at Joliet, Illinois, Alexander Davidson of Beaverton, Oregon, Damian Long of Fort McMurray, Alberta, Tracy Martin and the Martin household of Foster City, California, Sam Mitchum and the Mitchum household of Longwood, Florida, Jesse Fyth of Montreal, Quebec, Kenneth Treffinger of Bradenton, Florida, Emily Card and the Card family of Alpine, Texas, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason. Thank you so much. It really does mean a lot. I really appreciate how much you enjoy what we're doing here. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, whose dedication to a peaceful transition of power extends, perhaps especially, to those Zoom scope eyepieces. It should not take more than a gentle nudge to go from 25x to 60x. Technical production is by John Lowry, who, tired of all the hummingbird battles in his garden this summer, yelled out in frustration, where is the peaceful transition of flower? Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who tells a story about trying to identify this one waiter and how David thought it was a long build, and Greg convinced him it was a short build, but it was you know, pretty cool about it. He described it as a uh, peaceful transition of Dowager. Boy, that one really, you say it out loud and it really seems uh, pretty rough. Anyway, you can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I was flipping through my new copy of All the Birds of the World the other day, and I got to the Australian bird family, uh, Tillerinkidae, and it got me thinking about what happens at the end of every breeding season. Do they reuse these elaborate courtship structures, or at the end of the breeding season, do we see in these birds a, a peaceful transition of bower? <sighs> Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.